We'll pick up today where we left off last week in our patient journey through Mark's gospel, chapter 2, beginning together in verse 13. I thank the Lord this morning for good lighting and large print Bibles, because I left my reading glasses at home. Mark chapter 2, verse 13, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, look, and he was teaching them. He was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Once more, would you turn with me to the Lord in prayer? Father, having heard our, um, our prayers and our praises, as we have acknowledged your great mercy and your great love, as we have sung of the centrality and the necessity of Christ, Jesus the Messiah, and him alone as the hope for salvation, at the expense of all other solutions to man's greatest problem, Having done these things and having opened your word and read from it, these, the living words, the revelation of God, may you now give us grace to hear, uh, to listen, to understand, and to apply. Not for our sake, uh, but for yours, for the sake of your glory and renown, in and among us, for the sake of your gospel in our community. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I've titled today's sermon, Jesus, Friend of Sinners. And... Um, we would all do well to be glad for that, yeah? <laughs> One of the disciplines my wife has asked me over the years uh, to instill um, is to summarize my sermon in one sentence. This, because of the two of us, I'm the talkative one. I often use ten words when four would suffice. But it's been a good practice And so I've begun to, uh, at the top of every uh, manuscript, 
to write what is considered a summary statement. One, maybe two sentences. And so if you're taking notes, you might begin uh, at the top of the page with this summary statement. There are no good people in heaven, only sinners saved by grace. There are no good people in heaven, only sinners saved by grace. As we look to Mark chapter 2 and today's account, we might note that steadily and inexorably, as William Barclay puts it, the synagogue door was shutting on Jesus. From the time Jesus cleansed the leper onward, Jesus was pushed to the outskirts of town more often than not. Ever since he declared the paralyzed man to have been forgiven of his sins, the synagogue was an unwelcome place for him. Luckily, the region of Galilee was riddled with well-traveled roads, the nexus of ancient civilization. And this is where Jesus chose, by both prophecy and providence, to launch his ministry. It has been said, Judea is on the way to nowhere. Galilee is on the way to everywhere. Now, being that Israel is the great fertile land bridge between Europe and Africa, traders and travelers would pass through specifically the region of Galilee from all over the world, being required along the way to stop at toll booths, if you will. One of those toll booths along the roads is where Jesus meets Levi or Matthew. There was an ancient route known as the Great Road of the Sea. It connected what we call Turkey and the Middle Eastern countries to the continent of Africa. It, quote, passed through Damascus by the way of Galilee, through Capernaum, down past Carmel, along the plain of Sharon, through Gaza, and into Egypt, end quote. The great road of the sea. Well, our story takes place first at one local tax booth and then at his home where an unlikely convert becomes the object of yet another extension of God's grace. If you're taking notes, we'll consider first and foremost what we always ought. Number one, the context. The context. We find this in verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Out again, meaning out of the house, out of the city center, out to the seashore to teach the crowds that were in the previous portion, ripping open the roof of his house. <laughs> you might uh, imagine the scene as it is in other places recorded, Jesus getting into a small boat, drifting just a little ways offshore, anchoring up, and then addressing the crowd on the banks. The water would act as a natural megaphone 
and the banks would act as a natural coliseum of sorts, an amphitheater. This to do, quote, what he came for, which is what? Heal? Feed? What? Preach. Yeah. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 38, we read, Jesus said, we got to move on from this town who is clamoring for more of my attention. We need to go to the other towns. This is what I came to do. We must go there to preach, you see. And the crowds gathered to listen. Here, you might say, is the context of both the story of Matthew's call and the ingredients for a good Sunday. You have a determined and prepared preacher combined with an expectant and listening people. They combine to make the preaching event what it is. A people without a preacher is just a mass. A preacher without a people is just a talking head. It should be stated clearly, while many things are good to do on a Sunday, communion, singing, prayer, the recitation of creeds or the Lord's Prayer, fellowship and a meal like we had this morning and so on, the main event should be the preaching of God's Word. In every context so far in Mark where Jesus does something miraculous, something amazing, something, if you will, earth-shattering, he does it within the context of preaching. He was preaching and they lowered the paralytic down to him in the house. He wants to leave Capernaum and go elsewhere to preach. And here, he calls Matthew to be his disciple, but what had he been doing? Preaching. Yeah. In the American evangelical church, we are not immature and shallow because of a lack of religious activity available to us. We are often simply poorly taught. Paul's closing words to his protege, Timothy, as he sensed the impending end of his life, he writes, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. <laughs> Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with patience and teaching. Why? Because the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Not only was Paul obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit to write what he wrote, he was also prophetic in his warning to Timothy. This is the context. He came to preach, and as he preached, he healed. As he taught, he fed and as he gave what the people needed most, he called them to repentance. Yeah. 
Well, that's the context, and that, of course, brings us to number two, which we'll call the call. The call. Found in verse 14, and as he passed by, which is to say, as he traveled, one of these routes that intersected all over Capernaum and Galilee, which brought traders from Turkey and the Middle East down to Africa and Africa back up and out through this funnel, as he traveled one of these well-worn roads, he came across one of these old toll booths, these tax booths. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, without wasting, uh, not wasting, but without using time we don't have, it is worth noting that in the, in the first century rabbinical Hebrew context, the greatest aspiration that a parent might have for their child is that they might one day become the disciple of a rabbi. And that in becoming the disciple of a rabbi, they might themselves become a rabbi. And this rabbinical teaching ministry that would begin as a traveling ministry might accomplish them and award them the privilege of serving in one of the highest religious courts. For nothing was a higher honor to the incredibly religious society of first century Israel than to be an adjudicator of God's law for God's people in God's place, right? This might be hard for us to grasp or to fully understand. We must simply take it at face value and go home and do some research. But if we might place ourselves in the shoes of a parent who wants the greatest esteem for their child and for a growing young man who would might have what would be considered the most honorable of professions, here he's presented with an opportunity. Follow me. And we simply read that he did so. Tax collectors like Levi were hated by the Jews. Of course, they were fellow Jews, but they had sold their soul to the enemy, if you will, to the occupiers, to the Romans. A tax franchise, such as what Levi oversaw, would go out to the highest bidder. They would have a quota to meet, and anything above that quota that they could collect, they could keep for themselves. Their word, their bill, was enforceable by the Roman sword. History tells us that people often didn't even know what their tax fee would be. It was just whatever the collector required. They were obliged to pay. Now, in the previous chapter, Jesus called a couple of uneducated fishermen to be his disciples. Well, that's one thing. But this dreg of society is another. Tax collecting would be a lonely but lucrative deal for a first century Jew in the Roman Empire. In fact, Mark tells us later on that he's having a party with all of his friends. And who else is there? Really just other tax collectors. <laughs> no one else wanted to have anything to do with him. Even the Greek writer Lucian counted tax collectors with, quote, adulterers, panderers, flatterers, and sycophants. 
not popular people, not highly esteemed, certainly not looked upon with favor by the religious elite. By this call and Levi's response, we observe a few things. Okay? We observe first, Jesus knows the heart. Jesus knows the heart. Clearly, something had been at work in Levi's heart, and Jesus simply knew it. Remember, he could read the thoughts of the Pharisees as they accused him of blasphemy. He could often sense what was otherwise unseen and unsaid. Almost certainly, Matthew had heard Jesus teaching. He had an ache in his heart and was ready to respond to a gospel call. Jesus could see what others were blind to. Levi might not have been welcome in the synagogue. That's okay. Jesus was teaching in the fields. Matthew, Levi, might not have been a likely convert in the eyes of men, but Jesus has the eyes of God. He might not have been loved by his fellow man, but he was called by the Son of Man. You see, this is the heart of the gospel. You and I might not be anything special, but if Jesus has set his love on you, nothing can stop him saving us. He knows the heart. Secondly, we might note that Jesus saves sinners. Jesus saves sinners. Sinners. At the end of the account, Matthew is hosting his friends and Jesus in his home, other quote-unquote tax collectors and sinners by the description of the religious leaders. To them, an unrepentant sinner and a tax collector are like an orange and a tangerine, two shades of the same color, right? And with whom did Jesus choose to spend his time these very sinners, stating later, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus knows the heart, and Jesus saves sinners. It reminds me again of the deconstructionist Michael Gunger, who wrote a very popular worship tune back in, I don't know, the day. Um, who sadly, foolishly said, if you think the good news is that you're a wretch, well, I've got better news for you. And it's a tragic statement because the best news is that we are wretches because Jesus saves wretches. There are no good people in heaven, only sinners saved by grace. By this, we understand the essence of the gospel. Number one, the gospel begins with believing that you are, Romans 3.23, a sinner. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That you are hopeless, Romans 6.23, the wages or the earnings for our sin is death. Number three, that we are irredeemable by our own efforts. Romans 5 tells us that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, then we'll be saved. 
not by works, not by effort, not by gifts. You cannot purchase it. You cannot earn it. You cannot walk your way a thousand miles. There are no pilgrimages that will earn it. There are no sums of money that can buy it. We are irredeemable by our own efforts. Here is the essence of the gospel. Finally, number four, the gospel message is not for good people. It is for those who have come to know by the work of the Spirit and by the election of God that they are bad. (laughs) You can get really theological and use lots of big words, but at the end of the day, it's what it comes down to. Have I come to know that I am in and of myself quite very bad? Ephesians 2 reads simply just that. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. You were bad. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were bad, dead, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So that's where the gospel begins. We are hopeless sinners, irredeemable by our own efforts. We are bad. But then secondly, the gospel continues with a call to turn. A call to turn. As he passed by, he saw Levi, and he said, follow me. Being told you're a sinner is not the gospel. Knowing you're a sinner is not the gospel. Being told Jesus loves you is not the gospel. These are precursors. Put simply, the gospel message is one which calls on man to turn from our sin. And without this call, the gospel is not presented, as J.C. Ryle put it so eloquently, without a divine call, no one can be saved. Now, you might say, everyone is bad, everyone is dead in their sin, everyone is a sinner, Um, but Matthew was especially so. Tax collecting was by nature a dishonest enterprise. The Romans knew that their subjects uh, would hate the collectors, so they made it worth the collector's while. Take all you can, just give us what we require. We'll make it worth your while. So the job would only appeal to those who deemed being rich was worth being hated. Those who deemed being rich was worth lying to your own countrymen. The job would only appeal to those who deemed that being rich was worth having no reputation as an upstanding member of the community. You'll be a liar, you'll be a thief, you'll be hated, but you'll be rich who volunteers and sadly tragically the hands would shoot up that's the context of this Levi Christopher Walken plays the villain in an action movie called The Rundown I can't recommend it because I think there's probably some language Uh, I'll only say that a long time ago, I watched it with my friends, and I thought it was really funny. 
That's not an endorsement from the pulpit. It's just an honest admission that one day I was not a dad with five kids. And at one point in my life, I was not 40 needing to use reading glasses. Uh, in the movie, Walken owns and operates an oppressive gold mine in Brazil. And during a particular scene where he's talking to the hero of the story, uh, played by The Rock, uh, Dwayne Johnson, Mr. Beck, he is his name, after Mr. Beck refers to his mine as a living hell, Walken's character turns and looks out over this massive, dusty, bustling gold mine. And he says this in a great moment of monologue cinematography history. Where you see hell, I see a spellbinding sense of purpose. I see the value of keeping your eye on the ball. When a bride slips the ring on her finger, when a businessman lays his hands on a Rolex, when a rapper gets a shiny new tooth, that this is my cost, Mr. Beck, my horror for their beauty, my hell for their little slice of heaven. Somebody's got to keep their eye on the ball. And if you're bold enough to face that cold, hard fact, Mr. Beck, he pauses, says, you can make a lot of money. If you're bold enough to face that cold, hard fact, you can make a lot of money. And therein lies the essence of the trade-off for the tax collector. If you're bold enough to look the scorn and hatred of your countrymen in the eye, if you're willing to uh, lie and steal and cheat your own family, contribute nothing to society, only leech off of it, and even endure the self-loathing that accompanies such a miserable human existence, you can make a lot of money. The gospel comes to the one who has bowed to the idol of self-interest. To the one who has pledged his undying fealty to the God of money. To the one who has thought only of himself. To the outcast. To the dregs of society. To the one who is deemed the worst of the worst. The gospel comes to this one and calls on him or her to turn from it all, abandon it all, start again, start anew. A true sinner indeed, called upon by the gospel to turn. So, number one, Number one on this sub-point, okay? The gospel begins with believing. You're a hopeless sinner, irredeemable by your own efforts. The gospel continues with a call to turn. And then thirdly, the gospel rescues sinners. The gospel does what it set out to do. He doesn't just call on Matthew to turn. 
he rescues him from his hopeless, loathsome existence. The gospel works, if you will. It sets out what Jesus intended for it to do. This is what theologians refer to as the effectual call. It is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. God works and he fulfills. Joel 2.11 says, The Lord thunders and mighty is the army that obeys his command. Or as it has been said, the voice of the Lord is mighty in operation. The gospel rescues sinners. Levi abandoned everything. It's not expressed completely in Mark's account as few things are. One minute, Jesus is in a boat teaching. In the very next verse, he's by the tax booth. In the very next birth, verse, he's in Levi's home having a meal. Mark leaves a lot of detail out. So too it is with what Levi abandoned when he stepped out from his post. To forfeit his tax franchise was, if you will, a bridge-burning decision. The vultures would be circling for the next tax post that might come available, and they would compete for the opportunity. To walk away from such a post is to know that you cannot return. You won't get it back. Peter and Andrew could always go back to the fishing boats. There will always be fish to catch. There will always be people who needed feeding. And in fact, that's exactly where we find Peter after the death of Jesus. Where? Doing what he knew to do. He was fishing. This whole Jesus disciple thing has not panned out royally, right? Talk about an epic fail. Let's go catch some fish. Levi could not say, let's go collect some taxes. That bridge is burned. And he knew it. It reminds me of the wedding vow that says, and forsaking all others, I promise myself to you. Such is the case for Levi when he responded to the gospel call. He abandoned and forfeited everything. Matthew, it has been said, gave up the most. And this is the effect of the gospel. (laughs) You might say it enables the feet to walk the aisle of repentance. His heart was changed. His affections forever altered. His devotion flipped on its head. This is the effect of the gospel call. But... The gospel is not for the self-righteous, which brings us squarely to number three. From the context to the call, we'll consider the controversy. Or as my um, British and Scottish uh, pastors say it, the controversy. Let's read it again for the sake of clarity. Verse 15, as he reclined at table, so here we are, transported to what many agree to believe uh, is Matthew's home. 
many of Matthew's only friends in the world, sinners and tax collectors, were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, which is kind of like snooping, right? These guys were weird, right? Peering in windows outside during a meal, right? Like, like, why is Pastor Don peeking in our windows during dinner? He's just checking up on you and who you're eating with. And he's concerned, you know? But you can imagine um, uh, a culture and a context where houses were all huddled up on top of each other through winding streets, open windows and doors to allow for airflow. There's no air conditioning. And so you might walk past and be a mere feet from someone eating their meal inside their house as you walk along the pathway. And you go, oh, Jesus is in there? What's he doing in there? Who's he with? Ugh. So the scribes, verse 16, the Pharisees, when they saw he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, he said to his disciples, who apparently weren't enjoying the meal with him, Hey, Peter, hey, Andrew, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Seemingly, they gave no response. Simply, Jesus, from inside the house, heard them. And you might say he sort of peeked over his shoulder out the window and said to them, Those who are well don't need a doctor but those who are sick, right? I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, there are a few things we have to understand about this situation. Number one, the first century religious community misunderstood the grace of Jesus. They didn't understand why he was there. If you're a holy man, why would you eat with these unholy people They didn't understand that Jesus came to save them from their sin while the religious community condemned them in their sin. However, in today's day and age, the 21st century community also misunderstands the grace of Jesus. They make reference to this passage to justify approving sin. In the first century, those who scorn Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners only see people as wicked and beyond reach, only see life in terms of clean and unclean, only view Jesus as an unholy participant in their unholiness, and they are corrected. I came to heal the sick. The well don't need a doctor. (laughs) I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Salvation is extended and received by those who admit and know they are in need of saving. I'm going to say it again. Salvation is extended and received by those who admit and know they are in need of saving. In the 21st century, in our day and age, Those who reference Jesus eating with the tax collectors and sinners often do so to excuse their own sin. Didn't Jesus eat with sinners? They often do so 
to demean a pursuit of holiness. They often do so to escape standing on hard truth, having refused to count the costs of following Jesus exclusively. And, like the religious leaders in the first century, those who misunderstand the grace of Jesus in the 21st century are corrected. Jesus calls his followers to, number one, forsake all others, including familial bonds. Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Matthew 10 Do not think that I came to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus calls his followers to forsake all others, including familial bonds. Secondly, Jesus calls his followers to count the cost of exclusive followership. Luke 14, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Later on, so, therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. We are compelled to consider what Jesus is asking. Count the costs. Forsake all others. Thirdly, Jesus calls on his followers to extend the same grace to others which has been extended to them. By these instructions, speak the truth in love. Not speak love, truth optional. Not speak love and your truth and my truth and his truth and her truth. The command is to speak the truth. The imperative is speak the truth. The simple and straightforward requirement is speak the truth. The qualifier is to do so in love. The world defines love very differently than Jesus. Jesus says to us, the most loving thing we can do is to speak the truth in love. Extending the same grace to sinners 
who are thus called upon to repent, as was extended to you, sinner, who was called upon to repent. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, teaching them to obey. The hyper-religious community condemned Jesus for associating with sinners, but on the other hand, the religious compromiser uses this story to justify confusion and compromise. We are not given the option to error on either extreme, but rather to take the whole counsel of God, as Paul says it in Acts chapter 20, into account, to live righteous and holy lives and call on others to do the same without compromise, abandoning all else to follow Jesus exclusively. Hear these words from Paul in Ephesians chapter 4. Now I say this and testify in the Lord. That is, if you will, hand on the Bible, right? I testify in the Lord that you, church, must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, given themselves over Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Two, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another. In recent years and months, the story of Jesus reaching out to tax collectors, that is, the most shunned, and sinners over a meal, has been referenced as a justification for Christians putting themselves in positions that affirm the sin of others in an attempt to win them to Christ.
Uh, friends, we are not called to give approval to those who practice evil, the very evil that would doom them to hell. We are called painfully to embrace what is true love, what is true compassion, and to risk every relationship on earth to uphold our fidelity to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To do anything else is to misrepresent Jesus. It's to sow seeds of confusion. to place a barrier and not a bridge between Christ and our loved ones who are running headlong into sin. And so may we, with every bit of compassion that we can muster, with every bit of wisdom that the scriptures offer to us. Be willing to stand firm, hold the line, believing that the grace of God is sufficient to save a sinner from their sin, and that it need not my miscalculated attempts at compassion to aid it. The call and the gospel of Jesus Christ is sufficient to save sinners. Well, if you'd like to explore uh, this subject matter more, both in terms of its broad principle um, exploration uh, and also uh, one of the more culturally challenging issues related to this principle in our day, I only can only encourage you to request my notes. I wrote 45 minutes more content this week. I've got another sermon manuscripted up. Um, that in, uh, that in, after prayerful consideration, I deemed was, in a, was not helpful to lay blanket wholesale on our church body this morning. But the content is carefully considered, it's carefully worded. And if you'd like to read it, you can request my notes. You can have all 20 pages of this morning's uh, document. In it, you will also find about five links to some helpful resources beyond uh, my own words um, that speak to the challenge of the issue of the day, where we might be as Christians tempted to compromise our witness 
and our representation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and put ourselves in a position where we might sow seeds of confusion and place a barrier instead of a bridge to the gospel. I can only encourage you to read thoroughly, think carefully, and pray earnestly that the Lord would give us wisdom to navigate these moments uh, that will only continue to increase in the days, months, and years to come. With that, let's pray. Uh, Gracious Father, I thank you for your kindness to us, that you would extend to us your hand in a gospel call. Uh, There is not one single person who has and will experience the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who was not first a wretched sinner running headlong into that which would doom them for eternity. Many of us can understand the sentiment of the Apostle Paul who refers to himself as the chief of sinners. Oh, how great has been your forgiveness of me, your servant, O Lord. And how great is the forgiveness that you extend to so many others. May we be willing to navigate these challenges uh, with boldness and compassion. For Christ's sake and for the sake of your gospel, we pray.